Father, even as we have just sung, O come, Holy Spirit, we continue to pray that. We ought to be well aware that apart from your Spirit working in us and with us and through us, uh, the message of the Word, the truth of the Gospel, the sovereign grace that you proclaim, all the great mysteries of the faith, simply will not be understood and believed and obeyed in the manner in which you purposed and designed them unless your Spirit works with us. So we pray for that mercy. We pray that you would enable us to grasp those things that would rejoice our hearts and encourage us to do all that you've called us to do, that would, we would be believers who are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that as we work for you, it will never be in vain. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there was a uh, young boy who watched the pastor do what I just did and asked his dad, Dad, what is the pastor doing? And the father said, well, he's, he's looking at his clock. He's looking at the time. And the little boy said, why? And the dad said, son, none of us know. Well, hopefully I do know why I'm looking at the clock. <laughs> I want to begin by uh, reading something that um, I don't remember when I picked this up. It was, um, you know, you can find all sorts of good stuff that make you think on the Internet. But this is a short essay that was um, spoken on national public radio, All Things Considered. Uh, St. Patrick's Day, which is the 17th of March, back in 2017. And I've never read this publicly before, but I, I, I held on to it because I thought, this is such a fascinating, interesting perspective that NPR would put out because of the kinds of stuff that NPR considers to be important. Now listen carefully. Um, this is Aaron Freeman. It's just a short essay. It's a statement in the title that he begins with, Why You Want a Physicist to Speak at Your Funeral. You want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy. So they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy is created in the universe and none is ever destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, Every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid the energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. 
And at one point, you would hope that the physicist would step down from the pulpit and walk to your broken-hearted spouse there in the pew and tell her that all of the photons that ever bounced off your face, all of the particles whose paths were interrupted by your smile, by the touch of your hair, hundreds of trillions of particles have raced off you like children, their ways forever changed by you. And as your widow rocks in the arms of a loving family, may the physicist let her know that all of the photons that bounced from you were gathered in the particle detectors that are her eyes, that these photons created within her constellations of electromagnetically charged neurons whose energy will go on forever. And the physicist will remind the congregation of how much all of our energy is given off as heat. There may be a few fanning themselves with their programs as he says it. And he will tell them that the warmth that flowed through your life is still in here, still part of all that we are, even as we mourn, continuing in the heat of our own lives. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure the scientists have measured perfectly, precisely, the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know that your energy is still around according to the law of the conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. Amen. You get it, don't you? What Aaron Freeman has done with that essay? He has just applied scientific atheistic physics which doesn't believe in any personal afterlife to the real life experiences that people will go through in this life in the face of death, that grief, that overwhelming sorrow when they're up to the fact that someone they love so dearly has died. He has painted a very, very good picture that such a funeral with such a message isn't worth dying for. In fact, he has taken us to the point of being able to say a scientific, atheistic interpretation of life and especially of death brings no one any purpose, no one any sense of comfort in their deepest time of need. Now, in a similar manner, as the Apostle Paul has been working through this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he came to verse 33 
And he was talking about if you have no hope in the resurrection, if you have no hope in the gospel, then, quoting the Epicureans, he says, well, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's a similarity between the modern scientific, atheist, physicist, that, that whole way of looking at things, and the ancient Epicureans. In the face of death, there is no hope. In the face of death, there's nothing that can be said, nothing that can be done to console the soul that grieves. But the gospel changes that. In this whole chapter, Paul has been laying out the evidence and the arguments for the gospel point of view. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And in the face of death especially, the gospel, which includes the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, changes everything. It changes how you look at death. It changes how you look at life. And it changes how we look at the future life to come. On Palm Sunday, Pastor Warren preached the, the evidences that support the historical certainty of the Christian faith. Last Sunday on Easter, he preached all the logic and the, and the theology that establishes the fact that our, our faith is sure and our future is secure and we have this message that gives us meaning for our life right here and now as well as for the future. Now we come to this last section, this passage, verses 35 to 38. And what I hope to do this morning is to take and simplify what I see Paul saying here in these last almost 20 verses. More than 20. What I hope to do is to be able to say Paul has one highly significant central idea. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we have a future worth dying for. I'm putting it that way intentionally. We have a future worth dying for. Let me tell you why. Pastors um, do, of course, have a lot of experience with death. Not just death and funerals, but the process of dying with people who are dying. And if you're a pastor long enough, you'll spend time with people who are dying and then begin the dying process as atheists. Others who begin the dying process as believers. A good friend of mine 
raised in a Christian home, Christian parents. In a period of two years, lost his mother to cancer, Christian woman. What was incredibly surprising to me during this process, as I would ask my, my good friend, how is your mother doing, was this. <clears throat> she won't talk about it. I said, what do you mean? She acts as though nothing's wrong. She won't talk about it. She doesn't talk about it with my dad. She doesn't talk about it with my sister or my brothers. She won't talk about it at all. And I said, what's going on? He said, I don't know. I really don't know, but I honestly believe she is afraid to die. And I said, how can that be? Uh, she's in the throes of, of cancer. It's not comfortable. There's nothing enjoyable about that. Doesn't she know this will come to an end? And she, he says, Honestly, Rev, I don't know what she's thinking. The sad thing is, she is not alone in terms of the experiences of some people who've been professed Christians as they come to that point in life. You and I need to understand what Paul is saying here. Because of the resurrection of Christ, we have a death that is worth dying because of what is going to come. Don't forget what I said to the children. If you belong to Christ, the story you are in is happily ever after. Now, to take apart these verses from 35 to 58, uh, I'm going to organize the three sections around three main ideas. The idea of a pattern, the idea of perfection, and then the idea of promise. With respect to the idea of a pattern, what we're going to see from verses 35 to 42 is this. The resurrection follows a pattern that is familiar to all of us, where the end is better than the beginning. Secondly, perfection. Uh, the resurrection takes our lowly, broken, and dying bodies and transforms them to an everlasting state of perfection. And then thirdly, a promise, third section. The resurrection removes the sting of death. Do you hear that? The resurrection removes the sting of death and promises us that in the face of death, we will have the victory. That is why, because of the resurrection of Christ, we have a future worth dying for. Now, let's think about this idea of pattern. The resurrection follows a very familiar pattern where the end is far better than the beginning. Let me just point you to verses 35 to 42 
42a. Paul begins that passage by saying, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And Paul's quick response is, you foolish person. Now, what we need to know here is that uh, Paul has two questions that he's going to address. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And he's going to do them in two different sections. He's going to deal with this first one first. How are the body raised? Now, we know that Paul is sharply, in one sense, rebuking them for even raising these questions. But let's have a little sympathy for the audience there in Corinth. Uh, Paul is talking to those who are not Jews. The, the Jewish people would never have raised these questions. Faithful Jews had resurrection in their blood. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he was before the Sanhedrin, and, or the Sanhedrin court in the book of Acts, um, he's dividing the, the Sadducees from the Pharisees and to appeal to the Sadducees, he says, I am on trial here today for the hope of the resurrection. And the Pharisee says, well, if that's what all this is about, forget it, Pharisees, we're not going to side with you. It was the common understanding that God's great hope under the God of Israel was the resurrection of the dead. But among the pagans, that wasn't so. Do you know what Greco-Roman paganism actually taught? Well, yeah, we're duality, body and soul. But the important part is the soul. In fact, the soul is immortal. The soul, soul doesn't die. The soul can't die. The body, that's another story. The body is corruptible. In fact, the, the perspective by, the, by, by the, common, the common pagan understanding in the Greco-Roman world was the body is at best a great burden. It pulls you down. It slows you down. It grows old and sick and decays and compromises your life. At worst, the idea was that the physical nature of this world was inherently evil. But within that spectrum of belief, it was wholly negative with respect to the physical body. Plato himself, the great philosopher, said, the soul is in prison in the body. Now think about that for a moment. The idea that the body is not a home for you, but somehow the body is a prison. Think about it this way. The body is not something that we find comfortable, something that we love, something that we appreciate, something that we cherish, but something that often feels alien to us, something that feels we feel a disconnectedness with it, something that we sometimes actually despise. Well, have a little sympathy then when we hear Paul criticize them because there's a valid criticism. You foolish people, why are you asking these questions for this reason? You're no longer a pagan. You're no longer part of that way of thinking. You're now a Christian. And if there's anything that the gospel teaches, it teaches that God is all-powerful. God can do all his holy will. God created everything. So why are you stumbling over the fact that the dead are going to be raised, and he's going to raise them the way he wants to. So, 
Paul's thinking this way. If in Psalm 14, the first statement says, the fool says in his heart there is no God, then if you, Corinthians, are thinking that God can't do this, then you're being foolish about your understanding of God. So he begins at a very basic and a very simple level to explain the resurrection. And he points to a pattern. He says, we have this pattern in the world that everybody knows about. A seed, whether it's wheat or something else, unless it dies, unless it goes into the ground and dies, does not bear what it's supposed to bear. But when it does, when it's transformed by that process, then God himself gives to it the body that he has designed for it. And so he works his way through that kind of an example. As a kind of parenthesis, he says, now understand this, and sort of behind the, we can sort of understand how Paul is thinking here. Because you think that the created universe is somehow negative, evil, second rate, he goes on to talk about the glory of earthly things, the glory of heavenly things. God created all things with an inherent kind of glory, meaning God's creation is good. But to sum up his argument, he says, look at this pattern. Seed sown, die, they rise again, and what they come back as is better than where they started. Then he comes to verse 42 and he says, and so it is with the resurrection from the dead, sown perishable, raised imperishable. Now, that's the first part. Paul is focusing upon a pattern of nature, a pattern that the Corinthians were familiar with, the pattern that everyone in the world is familiar with unless, I mean, little children know you put seeds in soil and after a while, something different comes out. The resurrection is not alien. The resurrection is part of the intrinsic pattern by which God operates in his redemption of his creation. And the end will be better than the beginning. And Paul is going to go on to talk about perfection. He does this beginning at verse 42. Ask the second question, with what kind of body do they come? This is where Paul speaks to this reality that the resurrection brings about a transformation. An incredible transformation. The resurrection is not you getting better. It's you becoming the best. No. And it's not just that the end is very much better than the beginning. The end is the perfection of the beginning. Now, let's see this. But first I want to take us to what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 
8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Speaking of the resurrection. Later in that same chapter, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, but not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The gospel tells us, the New Testament tells us, God is going to redeem his creation, his physical creation. He's going to redeem the physical body. So we come then back to the passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at how Paul describes the perfection of the body that is raised. Well, before we do that, let's think about the other side of it. Let's think about the imperfections. Because what Paul actually does is something very poetic. Beginning at verse 42, he talks about this, this situation that we're in right now, and then he contrasts it. About five times he says, we're this right now, we're going to be this. We're this right now, we're going to be this. He says, what is sown looks like this, and what is raised looks like this. So, he starts out, verse 42, it is sown, our bodies, when they die, sown a perishable body. Our bodies are perishable. It made me think of how often we get a container of salad, spring mix, and it has an expiration date on it. And I thought, wow, I wouldn't know much about the putrefaction factor, the degrading, the perishableness if we didn't often miss the eat best by due date, and we have, and we open the thing up and go, oh, this is awful, right? The human body is perishable. There's an expiration date on every one of us. And before that expiration date comes for most of us, we're going to begin to see the decrepitness coming about, sickness and aging and all those things. He goes on to say, it is sown in dishonor. The word dishonor there is also translated shame. It's the same word that Paul uses when he talks about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And many understand that inside the house, the vessels of dishonor were what in older times they called chamber pots. So it really, it's really, it's saying some very low things about what we are physically. Goes on to say, Sown in weakness. We're so familiar with that. Sickness, disabilities, decrepitudes, all this kind of stuff. And then the fourth thing he says, it's sown a natural body, which means it is sown, our lives here, when it dies, 
the death of what is an aspect of the fallen human condition. The physical life that we have lived, even the spiritual life we've lived, has been so compromised by the curse from Adam. We have lived in a fallen world and in a fallen human condition. But then in verse 49, summing up the bad side of things, Paul says, look, we were sown into death bearing the likeness of the first Adam. Back in verse 22, Paul says, In Adam all die. The reason why even Christians die is because we're children of Adam first, but not last. Now, he goes on then to contrast that with the perfection of the body as it's raised. So back to verse 42. What is raised is raised imperishable. What is raised is going to contrast the dishonor. It's going to be raised in glory. Uh, what is raised is, is the opposite of weakness. It's going to be raised in power. And what is raised is no longer going to be at all contained, constrained by the fallen condition. No, it's going to be raised as a spiritual body, a body that is now empowered fully by the Spirit of the living God. We know this from other parts of what Paul has written, Romans 6, 5. He says, For if we have been united with Christ in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Well, what was His resurrection like? What was His resurrection body like? Well, we don't have to guess. We know something about it because of what happens on the day of resurrection as Luke records it in Luke chapter 24. After the story of the road to Emmaus where Jesus walks along with, with two of the disciples and then disappears at the breaking of the bread, he reappears suddenly to all the gathered disciples within a locked room. Luke 24, 36 to 43. So the disciples are talking about these things that have transpired that day, reports of people having seen the risen Jesus. Jesus stands among them and he says, like in the Gospel of John, peace be unto you. And they're startled, they're frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why does doubt arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And they were still disbelieving for joy. And he said, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before him. Paul is telling us, the New Testament tells us, our resurrection is going to be like the resurrection of Christ. 
It's going to be physical. And Paul's last statement, verse 49, confirming this, our bodies will be raised bearing the likeness of Christ. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, do you think about this? Do you contemplate the fact that your resurrection will in some way mirror, be like, have similarities to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead? Could anything be more perfect than to be like Jesus in your resurrection? Doesn't this give you a kind of awesome hope with respect to the end of this life and what lies beyond? I want to say this. It is a terrible, terrible thing of a broken heart to want to die. It is an incredibly different thing as a Christian to feel increasingly the pull toward heaven. One comes out of despair. The other comes out of the Spirit whispering in your ear, speaking through His Word. What comes beyond is far more than you could ever imagine or believe. The end is not just very much better than the beginning. It's telling me. It is superlative. Not just better. It's the best. Not just a better edition. A perfect edition. Now, i got to come to the last part. The final thing, verses 50 to 58, the promise. And we're talking about what to hold on to in terms of deeply believing a promise that removes the sting of death, that gives you victory in the face of death. In David, Psalm 23, those famous words, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. What does Paul have to say in this passage that relates to that? Three things. He says, we definitely have a future to look forward to. He restates some of the things that he stated before. He says again, the perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. And because of that, the sting of death is going to be gone. And he ties all that in to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because thanks be to God who has given us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. First thing. 
you, believer, have a future to look forward to, not a future to fear. There will be times in which you will pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't wimp. Trust. Walk with Jesus. He's walked that path before you. You have a future worth dying for. I lost a very good friend about 12 years ago who was a mentor to me. Diagnosed in September, died in March. Cancer. Rapid. During that time, he taught me things I did not fully understand. Number one, how to die well. The intensity with which he put himself into Bible study and the reading of theology was incredible. Bob, why are you doing this? He says, my hunger for God, my hunger to know his word has never been stronger as I think about heaven. The second thing he said to me is this, Pastor, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if anyone has ever told you this before. I don't know if you got this in seminary. But your job is to prepare people to die because they will. And that caused me to think and change my preaching, my teaching, to understand that we have a hope. We have everything in the resurrection of Christ and in his gospel that gives us a dying worth dying. But this also means with that future we have living that is worth living right now. And that's Paul's verse 58. Therefore, because of all of this, because the, the end is so much better than the beginning, because we have a future that is going to bring incredible perfection, and because this future gives us victory in the face of death, beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord your labor will never be in vain. My time's up. Amen. Let's pray. Help us, Father by your Spirit to hold on to the victory that we have in Christ, to his glory, for his name's sake, and for our own building up and our most precious faith, we pray. Amen.